0: Learn more at Marines.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
2: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast, I'm Dave Hendon, uh, the reviews are in for last week's episode and it turns out he was a stinker. Oh, uh, Not many compliments on last week's episode and that's fine, I said it was no good at the time. <laughs> but this week we are pat full, pat full this week, I think this this one will uh, salvage the situation. Um, so uh, do stay with us, we've got to, later on I'll be doing a top 10 countdown of, of uh, leading non-players through the years. And we've also got to... Your email's to come. Of course, it's quite a uh, barren time at the moment. We're waiting for things to pick up again. I do have to say this, though. You know, you, you, if you observe some of the sort of chat around it, you'd think snooker was a, in an unprecedented crisis. I mean, complete nonsense. There's actually a lot of snooker coming up. We're just waiting for it. If you look at the calendar of the season, then there might be some events added to it. There's 15 ranking events. 12 of those are open to the whole tour. There's three that have limited fields. Everyone can get in them, but they're the player series events. Everyone can get in them but they are obviously your limited fields. And then you've got, if you're a top player, so say you're Ronnie O'Sullivan, you've got the Masters, you've got the Champions you've got the Invitation Championship League, you've got the Hong Kong Masters, you've got the mixed doubles. Um, now, obviously, you know, that's at the top end of the game. At the bottom end of the game, everyone would like more tournaments. There may be some added to the schedule later on in the season. We know what the problem is. Of course, it's China still, the uncertainty around COVID. Um, and we don't know when those tournaments will be coming back. Now, you know... You can say, well, well, Snooker haven't sort of explored other markets properly, but actually that it would have been a dereliction of duty not to have gone to China with all that money on offer. It would have been ridiculous to have turned it down, so um, they were right to do that and i'm I'm sure that uh, everyone would love to return there at some point. but you know the game is not <laughs> suddenly on its knees that's that's nonsense. It was on its knees when Barry Hill took over. There were only six ranking events then. Um, there are still 15 now. I think the most we had was 19 or maybe 20. That's not including all the PTCs and the sort of minor ranking events. But, um, so yes, there's fewer events. That's not good news, but it's not like we're down to single figures again. Players say, Oh, well, you know, it's, uh, I've, I've, it's three weeks or it's six weeks to my next match. Well, that's because you just lost <laughs> in a qualifier. I do feel personally qualifiers should be played nearer the main events. I do believe that. And actually, I quite like the home nations when you started with all the players at the venue because it was a level playing field as such. The problem with that, of course, is you know you need big venues and you know most of the places they play there isn't room for, for example, enough practice tables and so on, and it is a bit crowded. Um, but I think some of the lower-ranked players need a reality check, frankly, because the complaints about, for example, the mixed doubles, people have said, oh, that should be for everyone on the tour. No, it it shouldn't actually, because it wasn't a choice between having a 128-player event and an 8-player event. It was a choice between having an 8-player event and nothing. Same with the Hong Kong tournament. That wasn't a choice between having a ranking event and an invitation event. It was a choice between having an invitation event and nothing. And the fact is, the top players drive the interest. That's why they're on the posters. That's why they're on the TV table. They're the best players. They entertain. They're the players people want to watch. They, in some ways, carry the tour. And also, there's a misunderstanding amongst a lot of players about how their profession, which is what it is, or what it's supposed to be, how their sport is funded. It's funded through three main ways. One is ticket sales, one is sponsorship. But overwhelmingly, the main way is broadcast fees that they get from the broadcasters that run into the millions, Okay, How do those broadcast fees get funded? Well, for commercial television, it's through advertising, Okay, Advertising revenue... He said it's highest when more people are watching. They can charge more for the adverts. And in snooker, more people are watching when the top players are playing. So that is how it works. It's all driven by not just the sport, but by the actual personalities playing. So the top players drive the wealth. Of course, they pocket a lot of the wealth as well, but that's because they win the tournaments. Um, So when people say every event should be for everyone, I'm sorry that the economics don't work out. It's supply and demand, you know? I would have more invitation events pers- personally, not not instead of ranking tournaments, but I think what they do in the PDC darts have the World Series where they go to various countries just for a couple of days. That would be a great way of spreading the world the word. It's what Barry Hearn did with Matchroom and other promoters have done over the years. Take a small number of players to different parts of the globe, try and grow the interest, and eventually you might have a ranking event there. But you don't start with a ranking tournament. Um, so anyway, uh, that was that's just my take on it. I think some of the chat around this. I understand people, obviously, you know, they want to play and they want to earn money, but I think people have to also be a little bit realistic and also also sort of take stock of things a little bit. Because of of the 16, sorry, 15 ranking events on the tour now, only three of them existed when Barry Hearn took over, OK? Or were on the tour then. The British Open obviously had been there, but, but had been dropped. 2010, the only ranking events... That were going then, that are going now. The World Championship, the UK Championship, and the Welsh Open. Every other tournament he has introduced, or his team have introduced, onto the tour in that time. So that I think deserves actually um, a lot of gratitude and, and and a kind of acceptance that things have turned around. And let's not forget who was running the sport in 2010: the players, um, who only just accepted Barry um, and Barry's plan to take over. So look, hopefully. In a few weeks' time, when we get into the thick of the season, all this sort of uh, chat will go away. But anyway, that's um, that's how the land lies at the moment. And uh, as I say, coming up later, we've got a uh, top ten countdown. But before that, oh, a huge feature, huge feature coming up. Um, well, it's yeah, it's it, it's it's moderately sized. Let's put it that way. So we've had an email from uh, Paul Wilson. Now he's a man in Fiji, who I think single-handedly was keeping this podcast uh, at the top of their rankings for a while. So it's great to hear Dave Tyndall's snooker music doubles pairings based on birthdays. This was last week, of course. But he left out the 22nd of August, the birthday of Steve Davis. And Steve Davis. <laughs> Surely the winning pairing. Of course, Steve, a player, but also now has become, uh, well, a musician. As, as Paul says, in all seriousness, I think what Steve Davis is doing with the Utopia Strong is fascinating. I just got my hands on their latest album and I think it's wonderful. An interesting bloke indeed. Thanks again for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to see a new episode pop up in my feed. Thank you, Paul, in Fiji. Well, this sparked off uh, some thoughts for me because Stuka has a longer history of music than you might think. Oh, it does. Uh, We'll get to some of the big beasts of this later. But uh, there's been a few players down the years who have uh, dabbled in in music. Uh, You wouldn't describe all of it as music, but uh, they've done their best put it that way. And I thought we would revisit a few of the the efforts down the years. You think of the great songwriters of our time, you know, Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, Carole King, Paul Simon, Stevie Wonder, Peter Devlin. These people have really entertained us over the years with their their lyrics and their music. And uh, snooker players have attempted (laughs) to do similar. And uh, we start with, actually, Alex Higgins, Okay, Now, Alex Higgins, you might think, well, was was he a singer? Well, not really, as it turned out. But he did his best. And, of course, 1982... He, uh, he won, as we know, the World Championship, so was very much in demand and all sorts of, you know, appearances and whatever. And someone had the idea, Alex, you should make a record. He made a record. It was called 147. <laughs> yes, it was. And I'm now going to play you a little bit of Alex Higgins singing 147. Now the first thing you'll notice about 147 is it's no good. <laughs> it's not any good, but, you know, it was the 80s and there was a certain novelty value to, uh, to, to all of this. Uh, a little more from Alan... Of course, for years, footballers had, had released sort of official records around the FA Cup final and, and the World Cup and so on. It never really happened in snooker. You know, you didn't, didn't get John Spencer turning up at... Uh, 1978 World Championship with a, with, a, with a record but Alex in many ways broke the mould and uh, well he, let's listen to him now Breaking the Mould
1: Could have been ye- bit, the element Hurricanes the fella that won't golf a little one's jack I'm a you wouldn't settle for a two when I see my way through to the black 1-4-7 that's my idea of heaven trying to keep trying keep my fancy house uh,
2: that will do. I think for one four seven. Yes, it's an acquired taste, and not one that I've acquired, to be to be perfectly honest. By the way, I can only play uh, thirty seconds of these without having to pay anybody. But anyway, um, but here's the thing about uh, okay one four seven. The B side of one four seven was called "Life's in the Pocket." Okay, and "Life's in the Pocket" is actually pretty good. Don't take my word for it. Here's Alex Higgins singing "Life's in the Pocket." is already, isn't it that sounds like the 80s. You've got life in the pocket, it's in
1: the bind. If you don't let your problems become a try. Just take those bills like a game.
2: Now, clearly, Alex, you know, he's not got the best voice, he's doing his best and and and, and good luck to him, but he, but it's, uh, I, I think that's, at uh, an early 80s, kind of pop song, I think that's all right. Let's add a little bit more. I'm saying that's not too bad. I'm saying that's not too bad. And uh, it didn't end there for Alex Higgins because he later, a few years later... Uh he, he released a record 1986 The Wanderer now this was a well known song but they rewrote the lyrics or somebody did and the, the group was called Four Away and the four were Alex Tony Knowles Kirk Stevens and Jimmy White there's a quiet night <laughs> there's a quiet night out you can just imagine them ticking off the Ten Commandments one by one can't in a night out those four but anyway they uh, they, they released this, uh, this cover version I mean it's it, it is terrible it's got to be said and again don't just take my word for it <coughs> Now, this was 1986, and of course, uh, this is sort of the Snooker's version of Blur vs. Oasis, because the other song in 1986 that uh, everyone will remember was, of course, The Matru Mob, featuring Chas and Dave, Snooker Lupia. This is the the high watermark. This is the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band of the Snooker music crossover genre. Um, Chas and Dave, it's worth saying this, okay? This was a novelty record, but they were not a novelty act. They came from... Uh, quite a long tradition of uh, sort of working class uh, music from London, the sort of Cockney music um, that was played in pubs and, and, and was part of the sort of culture, culture that obviously has not disappeared, but it's not as mainstream as it once was. And they obviously, uh, oh, I just pressed, uh, see, I'm so excited to queue this up that I've just uh, pressed the wrong button there. Uh, yeah, they were they were very much uh, a very popular uh, double act, Chad and Dave. Uh, they have some lovely songs, actually. Uh, but it's all in the tradition, this sort of cockney music tradition of, you know, the, the, the that that scene they came from, if you like. Uh now Snooker Loopy, I'm sure a lot of people know this song. Um, and if you don't, well here's your chance.
1: Snooker Loopy, nuts, we? Me and, him and, him and me. We'll show you what we can do with a and
2: Now that clapping you can hear there that's that's taken from a live performance on uh, top of the pops although it seemed only Chaz and Dave were live because the players um, were not there I don't know where they were but uh let's let's re- let's listen now to Dennis Taylor singing his line Never ever
1: got to fly the old mind and now
2: crazy a lot, I wear these gargoyles. Because I wear these goggles uh, they, they managed to find a rhyme for boggles with goggles, And you've got, to, you've got to respect that uh, Of course Dennis was on there um, Tony Meo, Terry Griffiths uh, Willie Thorne, his heir's all gone And Steve Davis And of course at the end uh, Barry Hearn appears and, and the whole thing is um, Barry don't care who wins this year Because he's got the rest of us signed up The only problem with that is it was 1986 They hadn't got Joe Johnson signed up He did win the World Championship uh, They signed Dennis but Joe Johnson won it uh, but, uh, Snooker Loopy reached number six in the, uh, in the UK singles chart, just after the 1986 World Championship ended, in fact. Um, and I've actually got the top ten here, okay, so it, 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 got as high as number six, it had been at eleven, went up to number six. So this was the top ten, okay, just to give you a flavour, those of you who don't remember the time, these were the ten records in the top ten, and it's fair to say, uh, there's something for everyone here, Except possibly music fans, but anyway, number ten, "Live to Tell," Madonna. Not one of her best, and I, I, I you know, I, 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 I don't apologise for liking Madonna. They're not one of her best songs. Number nine, "Rolling Home," Status Quo. I don't remember that one at all. Number eight, "Why Can't This Be Love," Van Halen. I think I actually bought that <laughs> at the time. Uh, number seven, "Rock Me Amadeus," Falco. So there's again a sort of a bit of a novelty song that had been number one, I think. Number six is Snooker Loopy. Number five, Spirit in the Sky, Doctor and the Medics. That was a big hit, a big cover version. Number four, this was a proper song, Sledgehammer, Peter Gabriel. They had that extraordinary video, uh, sort of stop-motion video, that it took weeks uh, to, to make Peter Gabriel uh, one of the kind of more literate pop stars of the time. Number three, Lessons in Love, Level 42. That's a, you know, a very very 80s band. Number two is an excruciating song, uh, uh, On My Own, Patty LaBelle and Michael McDonald. If I'd never hear that again, it's too soon. And number one, and this was the time we were living in, number one was the chicken song, Spitting Image, which was, <laughs> which again was a novelty record. It was a sort of a pastiche of uh, the sort of summer, summer holiday records, I suppose, and, and Brits going off to Spain on the holidays. Um, yeah, I think I bought that as well, because when you're a kid, you, you think that stuff's hilarious. Stick a deck chair chair up your nose and pretend your name is Keith. I seem to remember that was one of the lyrics. But in amongst all of that sat Snooker Loopy. The problem, of course, uh, with having a success is you have to have a follow-up. And the follow-up to the Matchroom Mob was... uh, The uh, the Snooker Loopy song was the... uh, I'm going to say the ill-fated Romford rap. This did not trouble the chart scorers and indeed ended the career of the Matchroom Mob as singers. By now, they had... um, it wasn't just the five from Snooker Loopy. They drafted in three more players because Barry had signed three more players. So we had Neil Folds, uh Jimmy White and actually two more players, yes. Yeah. So there was there was seven of them. Neil Folds and Jimmy White joined in. I'm not I'm not blaming them for uh sort of ruin, ruining the uh the what could have been a great musical career, we don't know. But um, the Romford rap wasn't as good as Snooker Loopy, that was the problem. <laughs>
1: Tony, he's Steve, he's Neil, he's Jim, he's Terry, he's Dan, he's Willie. We're going to do the Ronford rap for you, know you might think it's silly. But believe you me, it's how they talk snooker in the bathroom club. It's rhyming slang. Come on, everybody, all pin back your love.
2: So essentially, the the, the story here is they're going to treat you to uh, a rhyming slang, essentially, again, from the, sort of the Cockney... Uh, you know, culture, the, you know, the rhyming slang and there's a few examples of it within the song so it's, uh, like Snooker Loopy, Snooker Loopy was educational because it told you the, the order of the colours and, uh, you know, pop the red, screw back for the yellow, green, brown, blue, pink and black and this is a different sort of education um, yeah, a little more <laughs>
1: Start the game on the cave, there's 22 gooca For those of you that are confused, that's 22 spooker balls. Now, 15 of them are newlyweds, then you've got the old rubber kite. Newlyweds, well, they're the red, and the rubber kites are white.
2: That's enough, I can't listen to any more. I suppose we've got to have the chorus, haven't we? We've got to have the chorus, so here goes. It's the Romford trap. the Romford trap. Over up your chat and get some of that. Oh. Whether you're a you a champion, you're a job or a chap.
1: Whether you're yellow, green, brown, blue, pink or black, <laughs> from
2: Christian on over the Womford cap, you can do the Romford rap. Now, those lyrics, I think these days, might be frowned on, but this was the 80s, anything went, and, uh, uh, yes, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the Romford rap, uh, is not looked back on fondly, I don't think. Um, certainly not by, uh, music lovers, but anyway, it, it, it uh, it was inevitable there would be a follow-up, but that was it. Um, the, the video's strange because they also, uh, there must have been some concept to film a sort of pop video uh, on a big snooker table sort of set. But the video actually is them filming the video. It's like behind the scenes. So it suggests that whatever they had planned didn't quite work. Uh, of course, uh, Steve Davis, as we know, has gone on to, uh, to a more sort of, um, well... Uh, Authentic, is that the word? Credible music career, maybe. The others don't, don't seem to have uh, continued uh, the, old, uh, the old music. But one man who's here, listen to this. This is
1: Joe's alternative career. Occasional lead singer with Joe
2: the group Johnson, a group made in Japan. that Joe Johnson song never lasted
1: long. So we didn't sign him up, and
2: we missed the trick. what a voice! I think that documentaries, uh, they followed him around, uh, uh, obviously, after we won in 86, ready for the 87 championship. And uh, then that, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's all there. It's all there. Now, we, 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 if we're going to talk about singing. I don't think he ever released a record. Well, in fact, I know he didn't. But Dominic Dale, oh, what a voice on him. He, of course, is a big fan of the old opera. Uh, and, uh, well, when he won the Shanghai Masters in 2008, he sat down in the press conference. And this is the bomb He dropped.
1: And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. life.
2: My- will do, that'll do, Dom. Yes, I mean, what a voice, what a voice. A big fan of Mario Lanza, I know, Dominic, and, uh, well, uh, that was his uh, sort of tribute, well, I, not to him so much as Frank Sinatra, but anyway... Uh, He'll do that at the drop of a hat, by the way. If you see Dominic in the street and ask him, he won't mind. He'll sing. He's not shy. But for our next snooker player pop star, we had to wait for Peter Ebdon. Peter Ebdon released, uh, I Am a Clown in 1996. This was a, a David Cassidy cover. Um, and it didn't, I don't think it necessarily hit the top of the charts, but one thing with Peter, He's got a good voice, unlike some, <laughs> some of the other people we've heard in this feature. So he did I'm a Clown, and then the next uh, follow-up song, it was called The Fall of Paradise, which turned out to be quite an apposite title for the song because it, it marked the end of his singing career. This was the last one he did. And it's quite a... Well, I think the word for this I would use is earnest. I- Is the word I would use for that and uh, heartfelt. I don't know how, what sort of what sort of style that you'd compare that to. Maybe Richard Marx. There's, there's one for the teenagers, Richard Marx. Uh, a little more.
1: That's
2: enough, I think. So it's been a, a while since uh, Peter did that. That was uh, the nineties, um, and you know, the, the time has moved on. But we now have, as I say, an authentic pop star because Steve Davis, the Utopia Strong, is an electronic uh, sort of outfit, and you know it's not for everyone, clearly. But it it, it is a, a type of music that has a big following, and Steve and the, the band have played in various uh, places, including Glastonbury. And uh, you know, Steve is taking it seriously. That's what I like about it. It's not a joke. It's, he's serious about it. He's as serious about his music career as he was about his snooker career. And I I really respect that. So this is a track called Shepherdess by the Utopia Strong. So that's, that's the Utopia Strong. So it's come full circle, from Steve Davis appearing on the most famous of all the snooker records, Snooker Loopy, to now actually being a legitimate music recording artiste in his own right. And as I say, good luck to him. Um, I don't know where any of that got us really, but I hope you enjoyed uh, a little trip down uh, the snooker memory lane. Snooker Loopy will always be, I think, at the, at the top of the shot. But I am going to give another shout for Life's in the Pocket by Alex Higgins, because I do feel that that's a, a, a little bit of an underrated gem. It was a B side, but uh, it was, uh, well, I thought it was pretty good. In fact, let's have a little bit more of Life's in the Pocket.
1: You're winning streets just ahead. If you attack, it's right on to the block. Life's in the pocket, baby. It's in the box. Chances, I'll wait for
2: your That'll do, I think. So anyway, that's snooker that's and music. Bedfellows, sometimes awkward, but uh, when, it's, when it's good, it's really good. And uh, it hasn't been really good very often. But now and again, as with lights in the pocket, magic happens. <laughs> now, change of tack uh, emails. Gary Park has written. He says, thanks, for, thanks again for the continuing high quality of the podcast. It remains engaging, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and I look forward to downloading it every Monday. I did wonder if Gary had sent this to the wrong person, but anyway, he it did, he did, it is for me because he carries on. So I don't know if you're still in the market for suggestions for a best of variety, and if not, then please just ignore and delete this one. I'm sure that preparing such episodes takes up a disproportionate amount of time and far more than the hours so of broadcasting. Well, <laughs> you'd be surprised, actually, not not really, but anyway. Uh, how about an episode he says that features the individuals? who are not best known as players and have contributed much to Snooker's development and popularity, such as broadcasters, managers, refs, journalists, promoters, coaches, etc. I don't suppose a contemplation of these people lends itself to a top ten format, but it would be great to hear someone with your Snook hinterland reflect on the unsung heroes and heroines who are not mentioned often when the history of the game is discussed. Well, I I thought this was a great idea, Gary, and I'm actually going to do a top ten. So this essentially is going to be my own personal top ten of people who... um, Well, let's say they're not best known as players, but have contributed to snooker. Now, say not best known as players, there are a couple of people who have been professionals in this, but they're not best known as players. So, for example, Rex Williams is not in it. Rex Williams um, was best known as a player. His role off-table as chairman of the WPBSA, in fact, he set up the WPBSA, he rescued the World Championship, all of that. Unfortunately, he can't make this top ten because he was best known as a player. That's a fact he was but someone like, and he's not in this list, but an example would be Jack Carnum, okay? Jack Carnham was a player, but he's better known as a commentator um, and uh, actually billiards player, more than snooker maybe, but he made Dennis Taylor glasses, all of that stuff. But he, he would be an example of someone who would qualify. So there are a couple of people who play professionally, but they're better known for other things. This is a personal list. I've tried to not make it too repetitious, so there are a couple of people in who... For example, there's a coach in it who I guess represents all coaches in a way. Uh, but anyway, let's just do it. It's all again a bit of fun and hopefully um, informative enough. So number ten is ten to one. These are the, this is the top ten people who have contributed massively to snooker who are not predominantly known as players. Okay, number ten, Sir David Attenborough. Now there'll be people saying, "Hang on, I know he's a national treasure, but what, what's he doing on this list?" Very simple. David Attenborough put snooker on television. Uh, he was controller of BBC Two when it was set up in the 1960s. Snooker had been on TV here and there in the black and white era, basically a sort of filler on grandstand. You'd have sort of Joe and Fred Davis standing by. You know, it was racing at Newbury. We need 15 minutes <laughs> of snooker to fill the gap between the races. So often Joe and Fred would play, would essentially contrive a frame to last, you know, that long. Uh, there was no integrity hotline in those days. They did what they, what they wanted in black and white times. Um... But yeah, they would, uh, anyway, it was obviously, you know, quite hard to follow on black and white. And and it's also true when colour came in, you know, it took a while for people to get colour TV. Not everyone had them, it wasn't available all over the country. But anyway, one of the ways that David Attenborough, uh, one of the ideas he had to uh, promote the colour service was to have something colourful on it. And snooker fitted the bill um, as a sport, obviously with the coloured balls. It's got a perfect playing surface, you can fit it all into one camera. So he commissioned pot black, and it was that decision that led to everything we have now. It led to the professional circuit, all the memories we have of TV snooker, started with Sir David Attenborough as controller of BBC Two, commissioning pot black. And we have many things to thank him for, but that is certainly, if you're a snooker fan, that's right near the very top of the list. Number nine, I've gone for John Paris, the cue maker. Um, it's a bit of a sort of standing joke at the end of tournaments, he puts a picture on Twitter of, of him and the player who uh, he's manufactured the queue for. But he has been at the forefront of queue manufacturing for several decades now. Um, and so many players swear by his cues. There must be something in that. They know best, after all. Um, I mean, Rodney O'Sullivan has used Paris queues for years. And it's a, it's a terrific um, story, actually, I think, his, sort of, uh, his queue-making uh, history it's a it's a reassuringly sort of old school profession i think queue making it's it's all you know hand done um and uh you know John Paris and his team they sort of go to the timber yard they get the ash and the maple and they they know what they're looking for and they, and yeah it's all very bespoke and um it's uh if you've ever seen sort of video of it or even been to his sort of shop and and, and seen it happen it's a fascinating process um so uh john paris uh and there are other queue makers and i'm not in any way um, dissing them at all, but it's definitely, he is at the top of the shop when it comes to cue making and, you know, I quite look forward to seeing his, his pictures at the end of finals because it's, it's just a, a sort of reaffirmation of the status he has in the sport that, um, that people want to use his cues Um, and he's still going strong, as I say, 30 years on. Uh, number eight. Now, this is someone, a name that people may not know, but Ann Yates was, uh, tournament director for many years for the WPBSA. Um, and in a way, in this list, she represents not only herself but also the officials of the sport, the referees, the people who, the staff who keep the tournaments ticking over. But she was an important figure because she is actually the only woman on this on this top ten. Um, professional snooker has been a very male-dominated industry. That's changed in in more recent times, but certainly looking back over its history, um, it's been it's just a fact it's been male-dominated. But Anne was, you know, the, the sort of number one at tournaments in terms of the officials for years. And she ran snooker in a very professional way, a very strict way. You didn't mess with her. you know. She was very much on the ball with everything. She took no messing from players. They all respected her because she was sort of firm but fair. Um, and this was in the eye of the storm. This was in you know the mid-'80s when snooker was ruling the TV airwaves in Britain uh, where there was a lot of focus, a lot of scrutiny on it. She would be protective of players. She would make sure you know they were looked after. But she would also make sure, and this is the important thing, I think, that there was discipline. You know, that people actually, in as much as, uh, as much as was possible, behaved professionally because it was professional sport and we were projecting out to the world, this is this is our product that we want you to spend your time and your money on. So we need to be professional. And I think actually uh, she was very important in that and she also kept uh, some of the officials in line as well. There have been other people who have done that job, obviously now Mike Gambling. Um, and, and Martin Clark and Paul Collier, but Anne sort of set the standards in that role. And I think sort of behind the scenes at Torments, you always knew that she was, you know, in charge, and that's quite important, I think. Particularly to say, at that time when you know snooker was sort of front page news. So I think that she, she's retired now, but I think she deserves re- recognition for, you know, that that uh, that work that she put in. Number seven, I've gone for Frank Callan. Uh, Frank was uh, often described as the sort of father of modern coaching. He was a fishmonger from Blackpool who <laughs> became a snooker coach, very well respected. And the fact that he worked with Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry at various times, obviously, um, tells you, you know how, um, you know how how important he was to them, and how, therefore how important he was uh, to the sport. He, uh, he played, I believe, he played snooker when he was young. I mean, he's born in nineteen twenty-three, um, so obviously snooker wasn't really on the radar much. But he sort of drifted back into it uh, in his sort of, in his uh, sort twenties, of and he, he played in the sort of Blackpool area at a certain league standard, without necessarily, you know, ever threatening to turn professional. But he was became interested in uh, in coaching, and he sort of based his coaching very much on the Joe Davis kind of. Uh, kind of ideas um, but also had his own ideas so he sort of took what was already there and I think he felt that it didn't that the sort of original ideas of how to play snooker didn't work for everybody so he developed his own methods he had the drill which was a certain uh, sort of way of addressing the ball I think you would always know a player who'd been uh, coached by Frank Callan, and even though he wasn't the top player himself I think people understood that he understood the mechanics of how to play snooker Look at Doug Mountjoy um, in the in the 1980s. His career was declining. He went to see Frank Callan, who rebuilt his game, and Doug Mountjoy won the UK Championship. And then the next ranking event, the Mercantile Classic, and he he said quite memorably after the UK final, he pointed at Frank Callan and he said, "Without that guy, I'm nothing." So it told you that you know that it really had had a massive impact on just the way that he that he played. Like say, Terry Griffiths, John Parrott would uh, were coached by him as well. And certainly, um, when Henry, Stephen Henry, won his seventh world title, he was, Frank Callum was, was in his corner then and it definitely, you know, helped sort of get the spark back into his game. He passed away a few years ago, um, but was, was universally respected in the sport. And of course, as I say, now there are other coaches and other methods as well that, you know, not, not, it's, I suppose it's, it's, a, it's not one size fits all, different methods and different approaches. Um, work for different players. I don't think Frank Callan was massively into the, the psychology of Snooker so much. His was a technical uh, coaching and um, I think one of the things that he kind of believed was that different players had to find different sort of things to work for them. Um, but anyway, he uh, definitely had a big uh, part to play in the careers of several players. Number six, I'm going to say Nick Hunter. Now, he was the BBC's producer when Snooker... Uh, sort of moved from Pop Black, which was a, a weekly program, to actually coverage of the tournaments. And Nick Hunter really led the way in terms of how snooker on the BBC in particular was uh, produced and how it looked to viewers. And really, the template that he set is still the one used today in terms of camera angles. I mean, things have changed a little bit, uh, in terms of that. But in terms of the kind of the basics of it, how you cover snooker how the programs look Um, he set those standards he was the one who kind of ran it again from what I've heard pretty much with the rod of iron but I suppose you had to Um, but helped make snooker what it was on TV and as I say, migrating from having a weekly magazine Pop Black which is essentially a sort of exhibition really to actually the proper tournament snooker that really is about snooker competing with other sports Uh, Nick Hunter was the producer, as I say, of those programmes, and he worked out in the north of England, which I think is actually significant. I don't think, I mean, I I don't know the the exact sort of how it all worked, but I think there's something to be said for having a kind of enclave away from London and that whole kind of environment there, Uh, just being allowed to get on with it, really, I suppose, Um, and, and come up with, you know, because they were inventing, these guys in the 70s, essentially were inventing, the way that sport on TV worked, um, and as I say, it's amazing when you look at all sports now, you can see the basics that are still there. Things have moved on in a lot of sports, but the, the, the sort of essential groundwork that was laid by people like Nick Hunter is still there. Um, and, it, and when it comes as well, not just to the look of the tournaments, but the sort of formats as well, what works best for TV. Um, just ideas like going into the arena and and and, and doing interviews there, and, and just the, the sort of the, the whole sort of um, aesthetics of it. They all that was kind of laid down back in the day, and he was very significant in making those decisions. Number five, and this man has to be on the list because he invented snooker, <laughs> Colonel Neville Chamberlain. Although he wasn't a colonel at the time, this is going back to eighteen seventy-five, Jubbulpore, India, all of that, the Uti Club. Um, I think people know the story. It was the British Army officers based in India. It was the rainy season. They were indoors. There were other sort of cue sports that they played. They started essentially messing around with them and developed a new sport, which came to be known as snooker. Snooker, um, the word is uh, believed to have been a kind of insult that they would use for junior officers, which makes you wonder what the sport could have been called, actually. Um, but here's the thing about Neville Chamberlain, though. At the time, he was only 19. So he was very young. Um, I suspect, obviously, that other people played a part, but he was the the man who was kind of um, credited with coming up with the the essential rules of snooker, many of which still apply to this day. And, in fact, in 2022, it's 147 years since snooker was invented, um, which seems uh, the ideal number, doesn't it? Um, John Roberts uh, was the, the man who brought who then brought snooker from India to, to, to Britain. He was a billiards champion and a, and a promoter, um, and he was responsible for the, sort of popularising it in Britain. But it started in India. Uh, Dennis Taylor's been to the UG Club. He told me, uh, he um, he filmed a, a thing, uh, it was, I think it was the Real Marigold Hotel with sort of older celebrities, and they were in India. And uh, he sort of trekked up to the UG Club. I think it took a while to get there, but he, he said he felt very emotional. Obviously, the, you know, the... I can't, I can't swear it's the same table, but the fact to be in that club, he played a frame on a table in the club where snooker was invented um, or where the rules were invented anyway. So, you know, that's, that's quite something. Um, and, you know, to, from those humble beginnings, obviously Dennis, you know, more than anyone, I think would appreciate having having potted the most famous ball in history. Uh, just where the game was kind of led from. Thank goodness it rained, you know. <laughs> if it hadn't rained, who knows? This podcast wouldn't exist. What a tragedy that would be. <laughs> Number four, Ted Lowe. Now, Ted Lowe, obviously, uh, I put, someone put a picture up. Our friends at Bayswatch, the uh, the Twitter account, put a, a thing up last week, Ted Lowe at the Crucible, and it reminded me that when he retired, he was a BBC commentator, Ted Lowe, for many years. When he retired, a few years afterwards, I wrote a piece about him. And uh, he actually, this is old school stuff, he, he sent me a handwritten letter of thanks. Now these days you'd be looking to get a tweet, but <laughs> he sent me a handwritten ri- uh, letter of thanks. Um, he was a snooker enthusiast at a time when not everyone was a snooker enthusiast. He was the general manager of Leicester Square Hall, where they had so many big snooker matches, exhibitions and world finals and so on. So he was a big friend of uh, Joe Davis, really liked the sport, and did his best for many years to try and get snooker properly on television. Um, of course, he became a commentator. There was a, a, a commentator uh, who, who used to do sort of most sports. Raymond Glenn Nenning a great name uh, of the past, uh, it's the sort of person Harry Enfield would sort of impersonate on, on his sketch show. Um, and he's, he lost his voice, so uh, Ted had to do a, a match one time uh, from the audience, so he had to whisper. Hence, he became whispering Ted Lowe And uh, but he was a great, passionate uh, sort of supporter snooker. Tried to get it on TV. He sort of came up with Pop Black, really. Um, put together the sort of the rules and picked the I think picked the players for a number of years. Commentated on it, so he was there at the start of that revolution. And of course, for many years, was a very popular commentator. Um, had a lovely voice, lovely manner about him. I think there's an argument whether that style would work now, whether people expect something different now. But it worked then, and you know, people loved Ted Lowe, and and he's there on so many great moments on the BBC. And the eighty-five final I mentioned already. Um, but yeah, he 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 was uh, a great figure in the sport. He was there's no, I mean, obviously the commentators now, many of them are players, so they're they're, they're sort of remembered as players. But he was as famous as many of the players back in the day. And um, you know, you you always felt it was. I don't know. This is sort of nostalgia, maybe taking over. But I always feel if I hear his voice now, it takes me back. You sort of sat, you know, with your nan next to the fire. It's Sunday afternoon, the snooker's on and all is right with the world. Now, I know that's a very romantic, rose-tinted view of the past, but actually, (laughs) that's what I associate him with. And also, he won't sign an autograph for my mother. So, uh, that's that's, uh, to his credit as well. Now, number three, Mike Watterson. Now, Mike Watterson was a player, a professional player, um, but he's best known as a promoter. Um, He, I think, saw the... Possibilities for snooker in the 1970s, obviously with the BBC and ITV starting to become involved. And he saw the opportunities to really start to develop a professional circuit, which is what the sport needed. The demand was there to see snooker, but it had to be meaningful. Therefore, you needed tournaments. Now, we only really had the World Championship uh, initially. Uh, Mike Watson was promoting that. Uh, and he took it from... A series of what had been not really suitable venues to the Crucible. Now the, the sort of the story that's always told is that his wife Carol had been to see a play at the Crucible Theatre which hadn't been open that long and said to him, I know you're looking for a venue for the World Championship. Maybe you should check out this place. It might be ideal for you. Mike went and looked at it, uh, found that it only just about had enough room, but anyway, tried it and well, <laughs> the rest is history of course. It's it's something very special to be remembered for, I think, what a legacy to have to be the man who took Snooby to the Crucible. But it wasn't only that. He did a lot of other things as well, which are important. He instituted new events to meet the demand of television. So, for example, the UK Championship was an opportunity brought in things like um, the World Team Cup, the World Doubles. All these sort of things were his ideas, working with the broadcasters to understand what they wanted. Someone like Nick Hunter he would have worked with very closely. Um, And he was very successful. Um, and of course, what happened was the WP was at the time thought he was too successful, so they took it all off him. There's always been this thing in snooker, um, you know, a sort of resentment for people making money. Obviously, Mike was a businessman and he wanted to, you know, run a business, but he, the point is, if he was making money, so were other people. But the snooker lot thought he was making too much, so they thought, we'll have that off you. And I know that he was, you know, all his life really upset by that, but as I say his legacy is assured not just the crucible but his other activities as well set the building blocks for the circuit as we know it now um, understanding that you need different formats don't make every event the same frame length for example um, and as I say working with broadcasters to understand what they wanted um, so Mike Watterson very much earns his place on this list we've got two to go so number two on the top ten uh, sort of non snooker players who've made a contribution to the game is Clive Everton. Now, <laughs> I can be accused of bias, obviously, here because Clive is the editor of Snooker Scene. However, having said that, um, the, the new issue, the September issue, is actually going to be the last. Uh, Clive, he's not in the best state of health. He's 85 this week. Um, and he's written about this in the magazine himself, but, uh, it, 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 it's, uh, it's the harsh realities of the world, the financial, um, realities is that the uh, snooker scene really, because it's never been a massive profit-making operation, he's done it for the love of the sport, um, but it's now in a position where it can't really survive so uh, after 51 years Clive has taken the decision to close the magazine down, which is obviously very difficult for him but what what a contribution, because here's the thing, okay? now we have all these wonderful um sources of information Q-Tracker would be one of them the Crucible Almanac, but neither of those would exist without snooker scene, because For years, in the pre-Internet age, snooker scene was... Its primary um, contribution was that it it provided a living history of the sport. All the frame scores, all the information about tournaments, junior events, you know, you would see so many um, reports of, you know, 11-year-old Ronnie O'Sullivan won this junior event or, or, you know, 10-year-old Judd Trump or, you know, 8-year-old Paul Hunter, whoever. And then, obviously, you follow their careers through. And all of that is there, and it's a great resource, um... Stretching, as I say, over half a century, cataloguing snooker on the table. But also, the other sort of primary uh, purpose of it was to catalog what was happening off the table. And the snooker started to become successful and money came into it. You then had certain issues around the administration. Clive fought many battles um, over the years trying to professionalise that side of snooker as well. And I think it took a bit of an emotional toll for him but he kept going and you know 51 years editing every issue is an extraordinary achievement uh, it's, we worked out that apparently it was only Clive and Hugh Hefner of Playboy who had edited the magazine that long and uh, you know they're very similar magazines obviously <laughs> I'm not well I don't know whether Hugh Hefner has that much interest in billiards, but anyway uh, Clive kept plugging away and plugging away and plugging away and really devoted his whole life to snooker obviously Known very uh, widely as a commentator, uh, a journalist. He was for years really the only journalist in snooker in the early years. He passionately believed it should be reported in the media. Quite often he was fobbed off and told that no one's interested. But of course, people became interested through television. And he was therefore well placed then to become a very popular voice uh, on television, on radio. The voice of snooker uh, became known as. Uh, he's the best writer the sport's ever had, I think. Um, and everyone has their own opinions on commentary, but for me, he's the absolute gold standard when it comes to really <sighs> saying what needs to be said and no more. He would never talk for the sake of it. A bit like Richie Benno in cricket, when he spoke, it was worth hearing. He has such a great vocabulary that he was able to crystallise his thoughts and not waste a word, and a, a great source of inspiration to me, certainly. Um, so... Clive, uh, through his journalism, through snooker scene, through television, uh, has made an enormous contribution. But also, a lot of people don't know, for example, he, he founded the IBSF, the Amateur Body. The Masters exists because of Clive, because he was, for some reason he made, in the 1970s, he was managing Jonah Barrington, who was the Britain's leading squash player at the time. And anyway, he had sponsorship from... Um, uh, one of the tobacco companies, and the account was handled by uh, Peter West and Patrick Nally. Um, they ran their own agency. Peter West, who was known as a broadcaster, cricket presenter, and he, he presented the old cum dancing before it became strictly cum dancing. Anyway, um, they had, had lunch with Club one day, and they said we were handling an account for Gallagher's, who own the Benson Hedges brand, and they're interested in sort of coming into sport more and have you got any ideas and Clive essentially came up with the idea for the Masters, having an elite event in London Uh, and yeah, 1975, there we were it all began, so, but lots of things he's done behind the scenes that have got involved in things that maybe people don't know about and just the the great sort of evangelist for the sport really Um, you know, he 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 sort of he would bleed snooker I think, and billiards it's important to mention his, his love of that as well. It's probably actually as a player more his sport. But yeah, but Snooker has a lot to thank him for. Um and ironically, from Snooker Scene's perspective, the sort of the way the game's become more professional and, and more successful in, in recent times in the end sort of made uh taken with the obviously the internet as well, kind of made Snooker scene's initial kind of two purposes a little bit redundant because suddenly in terms of the matches and the scores, you could find that out online. And the politics, it's not completely gone away, but it's receded massively because the changes that were made more recently were what Clive campaigned for. (laughs) So he kind of, in the end, got what he wanted, I suppose, um, at the cost maybe of the magazine itself. Anyway, uh, Clive is number two. And number one, I think, can only be Barry Hearn. Um, What an extraordinary contribution he's made to our sport. Uh, As a manager, of course. I mean, initially, Barry was a snooker club owner. He bought a chain of clubs. He was a chartered accountant, bought a chain of clubs in the 1970s before the boom. One day Steve Davis walked in and again, it's one of those Lennon meeting McCartney moments, isn't it? It's one of those incredible moments where people come together, different types of people, Barry an extrovert, Steve an introvert, both talented, Steve on the table, Barry off the table. And then when snooker made it big in the 80s and it made it big partly because of Steve Davis... Uh, I mentioned last week about how he brought a respectable audience and middle-class audience and all of that and therefore sponsorship and families and women and all the rest of it, children, to snooker. Barry Hearn was well-placed to exploit that. He became the first person, really, to exploit snooker's commercial possibilities. And again, a bit like Mike Watterson. You know, people thought he was making too much money. Uh, they became jealous of the fact that his tournaments were successful and there was a sort of battle for who was really in control of snooker. Um, he drifted away a little bit at the end of the 80s into the 90s. He got into other sports and he had a passion for boxing and football and you know ended up making poker big and temping, bowling, fishing, all these sort of niche activities that nevertheless have a lot of fans. He's, he, he's the genius at packaging things, Barry. Obviously, darts is, is probably the ultimate achievement, really, um, getting like 10,000 people in for a Premier League match. And I think the reason is... He's just an ordinary working-class bloke. He knows what ordinary working-class people like. They want a nice night out to enjoy themselves. He doesn't need a focus group to tell him what ordinary people want because he is an ordinary person. He knows what people want, and that's essentially the genius of Barry. And often he knows it before they do. That's the other thing. Other thing. Obviously, he came back into snooker uh, when it was struggling badly uh, towards the, sort of, uh, the second half of the first decade of the millennium has revolutionised things quite significantly. I mentioned all the tournaments that he introduced. Obviously, you know, there's still challenges and, and, and those have to be met, but Barry Hearn has contributed so much to the sport and uh, has just got that great personality, that great sort of drive that I think we need. He's always seems to be upbeat about stuff. He's always talking up what he's doing, but also talking up the sports that he represents. And... He's a bit of an inspirational figure, I think. I mean, all the guys at Matchroom have come along in his wake, you know, just have so much respect for him and so much love for him. And uh, thank goodness, thank goodness he got involved again because he has really made a difference to the lives of many people. Um, so that's it, that's the top 10. I'm sure I've left people off. There'll be people screaming at the uh, their audio listening devices saying, what about so-and-so? But that is my list. And do, of course, feel free to let me know yours. Now, let's move on to the other emails. We see a lot of people say, that's enough already. We don't need more, but you're going to get more, (laughs) whether you want it or not. (laughs) Sam Cole. I'm another one of those long-time listener, first-time correspondent types. I have a lot of opinions on snooker, as it's the only sport I follow, so I'll save some for when you have another quiet week, i.e. next week. (laughs) Anyway, he says, firstly, thank you for continuing your excellent podcast. You may not always realise it on a week where you only get a few emails, or indeed a week where you delete all of the ones you actually get. But hundreds, probably thousands, of people look forward to hearing your voice and opinions every week. Uh, thank you, Sam. He says, during the recent European Masters, I found myself wondering, who actually is Philip Studd? Other non-player commentators, such as yourself and Phil Yates, are known to fans through means such as your podcast, snooker scene, work for World Snooker presenting roles, or indeed WST videos where you're walking round Leicester. <laughs> yes, I'm still recovering from that, actually. Uh, he said, but however, I realise I know very little about Mr Studd who he is, where he fits into the snooker world. I was thinking an episode where you're joined by Philip and other Eurosport colleagues to discuss another countdown or ranking of certain players' titles would be a nice idea. Especially having a fill seems to be a fashionable thing among snooker podcasts these days. Another thing I thought of, a few years ago, BBC did a series of interviews with the players to ask them which player they thought was best at certain attributes of the game. They called it My Perfect Player. The videos mentioned cue power, safety play, tactical play, cue ball control, cue action, temperament, bottle, rest play, and long potting. There may have been others. This is something I'd love to hear you discuss, either on your own with my fellow listeners or with your colleagues. Thanks for taking the time to read my email. You'll be glad to know there's plenty more where that came from. Goodbye, bye. Well, thank you, Sam. I am glad to know there's plenty more that came from. The Perfect Player thing. I'm sure I have a memory that I did this a couple of years ago uh yeah, in a previous iteration but anyway in terms of philip uh, philip's third well yeah he he um he's a been a broadcaster for many years he worked at radio 5 live as a general uh broadcaster uh you would hear him on the on the sports desks and reporting from various events but he was a big snooker fan um back in the day growing up play, uh, play snooker as well and he became their snooker correspondent. So for many years, he was at the big events reporting on snooker for uh, Five Live. And then eventually, the sports department at the BBC was made to go to Salford. And I don't think, because Phil had a family in Essex, I don't think he wanted to actually (laughs) move to Salford. So he left the BBC, went freelance, and, you know, hawked his wares, as as all freelancers do. And eventually, um, there was an opening at Eurosport, and he's been doing that for... Eight, eight years now, I think, or something like that. Um, he, he'd obviously know for sure. But yeah, so that's essentially um, who he is. And, uh, you know, very, very uh, professional operator. And, um, as I say, a, pro- a proper snooker fan. Now, I like this next one from James Watson because this is, it, it, it's properly, it's both niche and pedantic. And if nothing else, this podcast is niche and pedantic. So James says, One slight niggle I always have when I hear it is the top-bottom cushion debate. I think I've finally found the ultimate solution. When a colour is potted and all available spots are covered, the rules state the ball must be replaced as close to its own spot as possible, below it. This always means moving it in the direction of the black cushion or the top cushion as people refer to it. But surely this is incorrect if it's the top cushion. It should move closer to the ball cushion or the bottom of the table. So either the balls are being replaced incorrectly or finally we can settle on the black cushion in the bottom of the table love to get your thoughts on this hope it made sense to you as much sense to you as it does in my head well um, it's a good point as I say niche and pedantic that's what that's what we like um, it's just I mean it is a bit confusing because when you see a snooker table on television obviously what we call the top cushion the black cushion is at the bottom of the screen um, I tend to call the the bulk cushion if you like I tend to call it the back cushion which is probably wrong as well uh, but I suppose if you call that the back cushion, if you say black cushion for the top cushion, that could be confusing because it sound the same. <laughs> uh, I'm really glad I started on this. Yes, but it's. I suppose when you're when you're standing to break off, you're looking up the table at the and the cushion at the top of the table is the black cushion. But I, I get your point. Niche and pedantic. Keep them coming uh, on that score. Adam Fisher. He says, it seems like your letter bag is as dry as Europe's lakes, not to mention the snooker calendar at the moment. So here's another question. See, people are just taking pity on me now. That's fine. He says, what's the furthest distance a cue ball has travelled during a single frame of snooker? I'm guessing a contender for this record is the world's longest frame between Dave Gilbert and Fergal O'Brien. I roughly work this out as being between a third to half a mile. On the flip side, what's the shortest distance a cue ball has travelled during a single frame? Thanks to David Grace also for answering those questions last week. Top guy on a top podcast. Yes, David answered some questions on uh, on brushing and ironing the table. Um, yes, well, I, I suppose the longest frame, I mean, which two hours three minutes, you would think uh, that would be a candidate for, for the, the longest distance. But I mean, there's absolutely no stats on this. I mean, there's just <laughs> there's just, just just isn't. But the shortest distance, I might be able to answer this actually. Shortest distance during a single frame because I commentated couple of years ago Championship League in Leicester, on a frame, I think it was between Barry Hawkins and Ryan Day, and there was a re-rack after two shots. Literally two shots were played and they re-racked. So how, how many frames of snooker has there been where the cue ball has travelled a shorter distance than that? So I reckon that could be the answer, but as I say, there's no official stats on, on any of that. Uh, Angela Beatty i really enjoyed the podcast, especially the short-lived twice-weekly ones, too. I was sad to hear the podcast received three emails last week, although very good ones, so much better of quality over quantity. I felt I should send in my contribution, even if it's a bland one. Following on from the... don't. No, it's not bland at all, by the way. Following on from the revelation that Belinda Carlisle and Kirk Stevens share the same birthday, and you share a birthday with Neil Tennant, I thought I would share mine. I share a birthday with Chris Wakelin, who was born on the 16th of March. Because of this, I'm a fan of his and take a keen interest in his career so far. I noticed there seems to be a fair number of snooker players born in March. I originally counted 22, until I noticed a lot of them have since dropped off the main tour. On the current ranking list, I counted 15 players born in March. Chris Wakelin is in good company with Luca Brussel, Mark Williams, Steve Maguire, Robert Milkins, Ryan Day, Scott Donaldson, and the famous Fergal O'Brien too. Uh, keep up the good work, Angela says Thank you, Angela Well, uh, Chris Wakelin, now This is he, interesting you mentioned him Because uh, I was asked by uh, our dear friends at World Snooker Tour To, um, a group of us, Neil Folds was one I think Michael McMullen was another They asked us to um, predict the season ahead And, you know, star player and all this, that and the other And so who could break through from down the ranks and, and do something And I went for Chris Now that, that in snooker terms, is like the kiss of death I've jinxed plenty of people, nothing personal against him I went for him because he's in that sort of middle ranking position he's clearly a good player he produced some good performances on television actually he's the sort of player who could break through He might not specifically be him but somebody from around that position in the rankings the sort of 50 in the world between sort of 40 and 60 in the world 50-ish in the world will probably do something it'll be someone who'll come through and have a good run in a tournament and why not him? Uh, well why not him? because I've tipped him of course <laughs> There was a prediction thing a few years ago that Eurosport did with all the commentators. Well, it was World Snooker did it, but with all the Eurosport commentators around Europe, a season-long thing we had to predict winners of tournaments. And I had a shocking time of it. In fact, I would have been last, but for Mark Selby winning the World Championship, who i tipped that year. Um, and and uh, it was, it was uh, well, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a glorious uh, period in my career, let's put it that way. But hopefully, Chris, despite those uh, disadvantages, can do something this season. Now, Callum Law. So, I've been enjoy- enjoying the podcast over the summer. Great listening as usual. He didn't say he, he, he didn't say it's this podcast if you're listening to it. Might be that that John Sopel thing with Emily Maitlis, That's, that's all over the side of, side of buses. But anyway, uh, he says he, he says I found the discussion around this season schedule and the gaps in it very interesting. You mentioned last week the idea of reviving some old PDC events. In my view, this season, and next season, if China is still out of bounds, then staging some of these smaller events would be a reasonable alternative. With a bit of planning you could potentially play three or four of these events in the space of a fortnight and try to grow the interest in the game in new areas. Although cost of staging may be an issue, it would be good to see maybe a four event swing in four cities in mainland Europe, the same in North America and the same in the UK and Ireland. I know not everyone was a love of the PTC events but I always thought they served a good purpose, offering players opportunities to play for reasonable prize money and ranking points while we'll also taking the game to new areas. In PDC darts, they have the equivalent of PTC events on the calendar. Uh, while they still have the equivalent on the calendar. While there are 10 or 12 major televised tournaments across the year, the PDC stage between 20 and 30 Pro Tour Players Championship events, which are open to all tour players with decent prize money and ranking points on offer. In the short to medium term, snooker going down a similar route with some smaller ranked tournaments could be the way to go. Another point linked to the schedule is that less events may make it more difficult for younger players to progress in the game. For new pros, the first few years are generally a learning curve, but if players are able to play in 20 or so ranking events, they gain more experience and should become better equipped at an earlier stage to survive on tour right now when there are less tournaments and it may be harder for new players to break through. Uh, apologies for that. the email. Will be interested in your thoughts. Well, nothing, n- don't apologise, Callum. Well thought out. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense. The, the issue always is money, OK? It's going to cost money to put these on, even a sort, sort of so-called small event. You need a venue. You've got to pay the referees. You've got to pay people to make it happen. The table fitters. Everybody, the venue is going to probably, you know, probably going to have to pay to, to go somewhere. Snooker doesn't have a permanent venue. I mean, this is something that they looked at years ago. I mean, 25 years ago and didn't do. And I think it would have, it would have, the initial outlay would have been a lot, but we would have really saved a lot of money over the years if we actually, as a sport, owned the venue where you could go and play qualifiers and go and play uh these sort of PTC events you could stream them, betting firms and so on. I'm sure you've make money back um they drag out the qualifiers for that very reason, so I think what you say has merit, and it would certainly i think keep some of the lower ranked players happier because they'd be playing, which is what they want to do um so yeah i I don't disagree with you, but I suspect uh, as with most things, I suspect ultimately the the sort of issue in the end is money um and that's yeah, that's something that you can't sort of magically, I guess, wave away. Uh, Alpha Bomsey, I'm, I'm, I can't remember when I read this out last week. And this is, again, um, uh, a great sort of uh, illustration of how hard I prepare for these uh, podcasts. I can't, I don't, I don't think I did, so I'm going to read it out. It says, like you and fellow correspondent Kelly Barker, I share the feeling that snooker has stagnated in the last few months. There's no buzz about the sport right now. It's a real shame that China is in no hurry to bring its tournaments back and snooker hasn't penetrated it or has lost its footing in Gibraltar and other markets. Hopefully my three quick uh, questions will try and lighten the gloom. Number one, can World Snooker use the upcoming women's event in the US to get an event on there themselves? Why don't I answer these in turn, okay? So to answer that, well, I mean, certainly it can't hurt. Obviously, uh, that event was played in a snooker club, a really nice one, the Billiards Club. That probably wouldn't be appropriate, though, for a TV tournament for, for, in the professional game. You'd need, a, actually, a venue where you can have you know proper seating and all that stuff. So they would need to find somewhere. So that club in Seattle um, is clearly a really important sort of part of the thread. But it probably isn't the place where you would play a professional event. And also, again, a professional event will cost a lot of money. But I know they're, they're looking at America. Um, it's not impossible that that could happen. Uh, it would be brilliant if it did, obviously. Number two, how come Matchroom can only promote two tournaments despite being owners of World Snooker? You and another correspondent said if Matchroom took over the running of, say, the shootout, the event would come off better. And I, I agree, even if the shootout isn't my thing. Uh, it, that's in the contract. Uh, they can only promote two tournaments because that is that was the contract that was uh, signed when Matchroom took over the running of World Snooker. Now, it's... As as Phil Yates said to me the other day, if they they suddenly promoted a third event, what would they do? Sue themselves? I I do get that side of it, but the fact is that is what is stipulated at the moment. And number three, Alpha's last question, even if it's a little strange that the players have to be in a bubble whilst allowing up to 8,000 spectators to attend, how big of a needed jolt could the Hong Kong tournament send through the game? A great opportunity to display the sport in its best light on an international stage. Completely agree, Alpha. I think that tournament's going to be really good, and it's going to be really good because it is just eight players. This is the point I was making earlier. It doesn't have to be a ranking event to showcase the sport. Nobody turns off the Masters because it's not a ranking event. You know that tournament could. I think it's going to be potentially one of the highlights of the season. Actually, I think I'm really looking forward to that, and it will be on Eurosport and indeed Discovery Plus, the excellent streaming service. Martin Eccles. He says you spoke about the Nugget last week, Steve Davis, of course. He says, I remember David Vine saying this after the fi- 1989 finals. This is when he beat John Parrott, 18-3. He said, if John Parrott is number two on the world ranking list, the gap between him and the rest of the players, compared to Steve, is absolutely massive. How wrong was he? Martin says. Plus, I live in Ireland. We could have staged an event in this barren time. Well, you could, Martin, but uh, again, you know, someone would have had to have paid for it. I mean, this is the thing, you haven't talked about this, but Goughs, of course, where they used to have the Irish Masters. That was a fantastic venue, but it was a fantastic one table venue. You wouldn't take a ranking event to (laughs) Goffs and have four tables. Um, So, if they were going to bring back a a tournament in Ireland, the the old Irish Masters, which was for 12 players, that sort of thing would be perfect. But, you know, then you'd have the complaints that, uh, you know, it's it's for the top players again. But anyway, um, thank you for your. uh, I I don't remember David Vine saying that personally. By the way, we should mention, as you mentioned David Vine, I should mention. talking snooker podcast with hazel Irving last week which was fantastic um really enjoyable hazel is uh the main presenter on the bbc for those outside britain um and she's been doing the job now for almost as long as david vine i think vine started in 78 finished in 2000 hazel i think began in 2001 so where are we now 2022 so yeah next year it'll be actually 22 years same as viney did um I'll say this about Hazel, okay, when you when you achieve a position, and not just in broadcasting anything, where you are kind of at the top of the tree, you are in some ways given license, if you want to, to not behave that well, because you can get away with it. And if you give people a chance to get away with not sort of behaving properly, a lot of them will take it, and we see this... With certain sports people, we see it with, with punditry. People one may remember Richard Keys and Andy Gray at Sky. Didn't exactly end well for them there because of their sort of behaviour. But Hazel is the opposite of that. Hazel is the nicest person in the world. She's ultimate professional and a great team player and sees herself, and she said this on the podcast, she sees herself as part of a team, not at the head of it. And she has done a wonderful job for the BBC and for Snooker as well. We've been lucky to have her. Um, In some ways, she sort of represents the kind of the best uh, values of the BBC in terms of its public service broadcasting remit. She, as far as I know, has never gone freelance and and worked for other channels. I've only ever seen her since she joined the BBC on the BBC. Um, She's brilliant at the multi-sport games like the Olympics, Commonwealth Games, moving from one sport to another. So much of it is her professionalism and her enthusiasm still for doing it. She doesn't take it for granted. She certainly doesn't act big for her boots. And apologies if I've told this story before, but years ago when I was a journalist, before I started doing commentary, I was rock- Well, I can tell you when it was. It was 2006 because it was the World Championship that Graham Dot won. I was at the Crucible in Sheffield writing for the Sportsman newspaper, which was a, a short-lived betting newspaper. It didn't last very long, but it was in operation while the World Championship was on, I was their snooker correspondent. And they wanted snooker content, and I saw Hazel in the morning. Uh, she came in the press room, as she often would do. And I said, would it be possible to interview you um, for the for the newspaper? She said, oh, no problem. She said, I'll, I'll come down later on. When I'm, I'm on air at 1 o'clock till 6, <laughs> so 5 hours. I'll come and find you after that. Now, this was, say this was half 11, so... It's half eleven in the morning, she's on air at one, she's off at six, I'll come and find you later. Now, I'll be honest, most people, if they said that, that's actually just code for, I'm not going to be doing it. (laughs) And I'll just say I've forgotten if you see me later. But I swear, at ten past six, in she walked. She'd finished the programme, you know, had a brief chat with the producer, come straight to the press room to find me to do the interview. How classy is that? And did a great interview. And, uh, you know, you don't forget things like that because she didn't have to, you know, I was a journalist. I could have you know, interviewed anyone, I suppose. That could be the attitude, but it wasn't. The attitude was, he's asked me, I've said yes, and even though I've done a long broadcast and I may prefer to go back to the hotel and have a meal and a drink and relax, I'm going to do what I agreed to do. And uh, God bless Hazel, she's brilliant, and uh, I'm glad that she's continuing in that role because uh, it's good for the game, definitely. Now we have another Irish correspondent, John Doran. He says, I've enjoyed your ranking of World Championship wins for Ronnie O'Sullivan, Stephen Hendry and Steve Davis. I think your ranking for Davis' wins were absolutely spot on. The only quibble I had with any of your rankings was the relatively low ranking for Ronnie O'Sullivan's 2020 win. I would have ranked that one much higher. He had to play very well and fight hard to win tough matches against Ding Junhui in round two, Mark Williams quarterfinals and Mark Selby semifinals. Surely his semifinal win against Selby having to win the last three frames and the way he did it is one of his greatest ever wins. But that's not what I'm writing about. Well, just on that, John, uh, I think the 2020 World Championship, I just associate that with being, because it was behind closed doors, it was in August, just a bit of a weird tournament. It's not sort of the, the great sort of April, May World Championship. I mean, I was glad it was on, obviously, delighted it was on, but I just associate it with being a bit kind of weird. <laughs> so maybe that's why it was uh, low down, but I take your points. Anyway, he says two things have been on my mind. The first relates to the current lull in the calendar. I think opportunities are being lost to have snooker on TV during these breaks in the calendar. It should be possible to have a series of short tournaments during this period. This is kind of building, or, or similar to what I said, and also what our, our Callum said earlier. But anyway, he says, uh, for example, there could be a series of two-day weekend tournaments with a small field of players. You could have eight players play over two days in relatively short format matches. Each such tournament could have a different set of eight players. Some criteria could be devised for choosing the players, EG players in lower rank brackets, local professionals, players in certain age brackets. It's been said before that there would not be an audience for such tournaments, but I don't think this is true. There might not be a large live audience, but there would definitely be a TV audience, or at least a streaming audience, as there is for the Championship League, and for qualifying rounds of various tournaments that are streamed on Discovery. Snooker fans would enjoy it, I certainly would. Anyway, there doesn't have to be a large live audience, it looks bad on TV, when there are a lot of empty seats, but the solution to that is to have fewer seats, when you know there's not going to be a lot of spectators. In some of the pool tournaments, there's actually very few seats in the auditorium, and those are often filled with the players' family members and other players, and that's fine. Such events obviously couldn't be ranking tournaments, but lower-ranked players would have the opportunity to win real tournaments in other sports, e.g. golf and tennis. There are many tournaments on tour that don't have the very top players competing. I find it hard to believe there's not ample scope for such relatively small events in locations such as Belgium and Dublin Watching matches with low-ranked players can be extremely interesting. The World Qualifiers are a viewing highlight of the year for me. It's partly because the stakes are so high for the players, but the stakes will be similarly high where low-ranked players have a real chance of winning a trophy and some money. It doesn't have to just involve low-ranked players, it's just that there are already a range of tournaments that are exclusive to the top players. So that's John's first point, and again, there's, there's a lot of merit in it, but again, it does come down to, okay, yeah, fine, but someone's got to fund it, they've got to find the money... Um, to pay the prize money, to pay the staging costs, and they do add up. So although what you say makes total sense, it would there would be a cost to it, and it's just whether World Snooker Tour feel that that's money they should be spending. Um, the second point John makes, he says, uh, the second thing on my mind relates to the women players on tour. First thing to say is I fully support having places on the tour for the top women players. I think it's great. However, it must be demoralising for the women to be struggling to the extent they are on the main tour. Both Nogonyi and Mink Nutcherat Nunch- Nunch- have recently won matches against Ken Doherty and Mitchell Mann respectively. I hope they build on their success, but I find it hard to see them winning many matches. They bre- their break building during matches just isn't strong enough yet, and the matches tend to be more than a little attritional. My suggestion is that the women players should certainly continue on the main tour, but that there should, there should be additional women's events hosted at the same time and venue as some of the main tour events. For example, imagine if there was a women's Masters tournament hosted at Ali Pali in the same week as at the Masters. It could be a short format event, perhaps using even six reds, involving, say, the top eight women players. The World Match Play darts this year, there was a short format women's tournament on the final day, and I thought that worked really well. It didn't matter that the standard of play was considerably lower than in the main tournament. The event was competitive and the matches were exciting. It would surely be possible to devise something similar for for a snooker tournament like the Masters. It would give a much greater profile to women's snooker than the events on the separate women's tour. Thank you, John, in Ireland. Um, yeah, well, I mean, again, it's 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 a good idea. They did, years ago, um, play the finals of women's tournaments at the professional events. So, for example, the Women's World Championship final was played at the Crucible, and that was a good idea. Um, and, of course, with sort of streaming now as well, you could make more of it. Um, I guess <sighs> you, you have to strike a balance. I mean, the, the, the women's tour is a development tour uh, as such to get... Uh, players now through to the professional tour so it's sort of it's raison d'etre has, has changed but in order for that tour to be competitive you need people to be aware of it um, and you need women and girls to be aware of it so you need a certain profile so definitely having those events more closely aligned with the professional events would work um, but it's maybe not as simple as just saying, well, we'll just turn up and play our tournament as well, because there are things like, you know, again, it comes down to, okay, if you want to play, say, the women's matches in the morning, you know, you need to pay people to turn up and operate the venue and all that sort of stuff. And so it's not just a question of, okay, we can do this and it's not going to cost us money. And it's all, all, everything in the end, you know, in, in professional sport, which is a business, comes down to money. But I do think there's definitely... A an opportunity, For example, some of the ITV tournaments on the Saturday afternoons, they don't have any snooker just because there's racing on ITV and, and there isn't the slot. Um, the World Grand Prix, for example, on Saturday afternoon, there's no place. So there's an opportunity there to play a women's event. They actually played the English Amateur Final one year in Cheltenham, but they could play the final of a women's event as a showcase. Um, so maybe not every tournament, but there's opportunities during the season maybe to do that. Uh, Again, it's a good idea. I like the fact that our listeners, they care so much about snooker that they come up with these ideas, and I I do hope that there are people sort of taking note of them. They're not all going to happen, but, you know, there are some good ideas here, so thank you very much for sending them in. Graham Jones, who describes himself as a passionate snooker fan, he says, Thanks for the great podcast. Keep up the great work. I don't really understand the snooker world rankings. I know there are roughly 128 players on tour each season, and the top 64 on the two-year list from the previous season are automatically on the tour next season. But there aren't 64 new players on tour each season, so how does it work? I know there are various ways to get on tour, such as Q School, Q Tour Playoffs, various international amateur champions, some invitation tour players and so on, but this doesn't account for all 64. An explanation on this would be greatly appreciated. Well, you've basically got it, Graham. What you're forgetting though is, of course, there are certain players who are on the second year of a two year card. So you've got the top 64 on the two year list, but there are certain players who had only had one season on tour, so they continue the next year. So there's actually going to be more, that, that automatically is more than the 64. So you've got the top 64, then you've got, there's actually 31 players who are on the second year of a two year card. So that takes us up to 95. We've then got the top four from the one year list, who uh, were not already, on, who not kept their place at the two year list. So there's four players who stayed on from the one-year list, and they're Ashley Hugill, Michael White, I think got got back on that way, Alan Taylor and David Lilly. So that's another four, so that takes us to 99. Then there's the 12 Q School qualifiers, so that takes us to 111. There's four players who've come to the Q School in Asia, Asia Oceania, which played in Thailand, so that's 115. There's two players who've won World Snooker Federation events. CJ Wee won the World Championship. Anton Kazakov won the Under-21. So that's 117, I think we're at. Two players from the Q Tour, Sean O'Sullivan and Julian Leclerc. Uh, so that's 119. Two players coming from the Women's Tour, Mink nung and Rebecca Kenner. So that's 121. So there's a, a place awarded by the CBSA in China, Peng Song. So that's 123. Three, I think. Uh, we've got two inter- invitational tour cards: Stephen Hendry and Ken Doherty. So that's 125. And then there's various regional players who have been awarded a two-year card. So Oliver Brown won the European Championship. Dylan Emery, the European Under 21 Championship. Uh, Andrus Petrov, the European Champion. Well, Oliver Brown won it the year before, but he didn't take his his place up. Andrus Petrov. Ben Mertens, Ryan Thomason in Australia, Victor Sarkis uh, in the Americas, and Ibrahim in Africa. So they've all been, from various parts of the world, been awarded cards. So I make that 132 players. Now I may have added, let me just add that up again. Okay, so we've got 64, uh, 31, so that's 95. Another 4, 99, another 12, 111. Another 415. another 217. another 2. 119. This is riveting stuff, isn't it, this? Another two, 122 with China. Seven of regional champions, 129. It's actually 131, because the Invitational Tour Tourcast takes us to 131. So that's essentially it. It's the top 64 on the two-year list. The players on the second year of a two-year card. The top four off the one-year list, who are not on the two-year list. The, the 12 Q-School qualifiers, the four... Asia Q School qualifiers, two from the World Snooker Federation, two from the Q Tour, two from the Women's Tour, one nominated by China, seven champions from around the world, and any international tour cards, there's two this year, takes us up to 131. And this gives the lie to people who say that the invitational tour cards are taking places from other people. They're clearly not, they're actually extra places, because the tour is supposed to be 128, but it's just gone over with those extra places hope that was, uh, that was uh, instructional. I like to think we bounced back this week. I, I, I wait the reviews but I like to think, uh, I like to think there was a lot in that episode. It was a long one but uh, hopefully worth uh, plowing through. Um, <laughs> any thoughts of course SnookerScenePodcast podcast at mail.com Snooker Scene podcast at mail.com. That's, snooker scene podcast at mail.com. Uh, that's it for now though we're proud members of course of the sports, sports social network. Uh, check out the other podcasts. And uh, we will return next week for who knows what. Who knows what? But uh, it'll involve snooker. I think we can we can guarantee that much. In the meantime, as we always say, goodbye. Bye.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network.
0: plus. plus